solve the problems that we have. The, the, but what I continually see in, in marriages that where people are looking to make a change is, is probably at least half the time people come with this initial blow up and this thing that they need help for. But then as soon as things start to settle back down, as soon as they've kind of gotten over the hump of the initial crisis, then all the desires to really make change in the marriage start to kind of wane. Anybody feel guilty of that? I mean, you don't have to pursue professional counseling, but, you know, you get over the initial hump. The weight of the crisis that you're in is like, okay, we're back to the place where I can kind of manage this. And the unfortunate thing is this, our prayers, you know, in our, in these areas tend to kind of follow in the same way. Okay. This is something I'm really heavy and praying for. It has my attention because the weight of the crisis is so, so great, but kind of once the weight of this thing is over, then things seem to wane. So number one reason that people come and look for change is crisis. Number two, is vision. Now, this is can obviously be the, op, the, the just the opposite of this. This can be a positive thing. So an example of where vision produces change is, is something like an athlete that they're training and they want to become better. And they have this vision of who they can become if they train to get better or a job incentive. An incentive is made to you to produce to perform at a certain caliber. And so you make changes to produce more or to get more sales. And you have this goal to Make a change. You with me? But one thing that I see kind of across the board is with with this vision change is there. It lacks stability because unlike the crisis where once kind of the, the pressure of it is over, is that with vision birthing a change is that it tends to wane when the next good idea or the next opportunity comes up. Right. It's the next popping kernel of corn in front of us that gets that catches our attention allows that thing that was once a vision to kind of move on and now we have a new thing and a new idea and a new diet and a new resolution right hence we talk about resolutions every january is that okay we have new ones from different ones than we had from last year but this morning we're going to talk about something really different than that a resolve not just to lose weight, a resolve not to just to, to move to the next thing, but a secret that allows any resolution to really become a lasting thing. I think this has to be at the core behind it. And you have to love the change that you're seeking. You have to fall in love with that thing that you're seeking to be different. You see, you have to fall in love with the opportunity in a marriage that's in crisis. You have to learn to fall in love with who and what this marriage can become. Then it can move to a place of a vision of change. But we have to even and then when we have visions of change, we have to fall in love with the opportunity and the potential of what this thing can become, that we're not just moving on to the next kernel of corn that pops in front of us as the next opportunity, but that we stay focused on the thing at hand. And this principle is really true, not just for resolutions. I use that as a segue into this opportunity that we have in this life. Before we get into that, I want to just kind of ask you a little discipleship question. So if you're comfortable and just you can just kind of close your eyes and we'll give you five seconds to think of your answer. And I'm going to ask you a question and give you five seconds and then I'm going to let you ponder on that just a second. 
When I ask you, where is God? What comes to your mind? Now, I'm not just think for yourself. What comes to your mind? Where is God? All right. Now, what your thought was probably varied across the room. Some of you, the first thing that you went to your mind was God is, is, is in heaven somewhere, seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Which is true, it's biblical, right? But where your mind took you when I asked you where God is tells you something about where you are in your relationship with God. And if you imagine God to be in some far off place, then there is a felt distance between where you are and where God is. And that's healthy for you to recognize and healthy for you to know. If you felt like God was somewhere nearby, maybe he was in the room, maybe he was in the church, that's, that's a good thing. But anywhere, we any of us that found an answer, something other than he is within my next breath, is missing the reality of what God wants you to know about who he is and where he is and what how present he wants to be in your life and my life. What are the things that lead us into growing and moving into this revelation of a lasting change to know the goodness of who God is and to know where he is going and know what he is about? You see, we have to grow into this place of becoming like who Jesus is and who Jesus was. We have to move into this place of knowing God as Jesus knew God. And we're going to unpack that this morning. We're going to look at a passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to look at Second Peter chapter 1. This, this passage just really defines my year of, 20, of 2015. It was... Um, I started studying this, I think, at the very end of 14, and it just became this passage, these first nine verses, this passage that I just couldn't get away from. I spent several weeks um, last summer uh, really diving into a lot of this, but I'm just going to read these first few verses for you to start with. Second Peter um, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received the faith as precious as ours grace and peace to, to to yours in abundance through the knowledge of god and in jesus our lord this is where i want you to start hearing this we're going to look at three four and five this morning his divine power jesus's has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness through those he uh, through these he has given us a very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness and goodness, knowledge. Make for this very reason that you have the you and I have the ability to participate in the divine nature with God. Then there become then there's this list that Peter gives us add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge. Now, as I started to look into defining each of these different terms, which is a great homework assignment, I challenge you to do this. I did this with my discipleship group and it was, it was amazing at what we discovered. But I looked at this word goodness and do you know what goodness means? Like I thought about that word before I started to dive into it in the Greek. And as I thought about it, I was like, well, it means being good. It means like an excess of good. It's like 
really, really good. And then as I started to do some research and on this, I realized that the Greek word means so much more than what the English translation of that word has to offer us. The Greek word of this of, of goodness is essentially something fulfilling the very purpose in which it was created. Right. So a good bait for catching fish. What does it do? It catches fish, right? This is a good bait. I throw it out, I reel it in, and if a fish is nearby, it bites it, and I catch the fish, right? If it's a bad bait, what does it not do? It doesn't catch fish. You with me? If it's a good car, what does it do? You get in it, you crank it up, it takes you where do you go, and it doesn't break down on the way, right? Who's had a good car in here? Everybody's probably had a good car. Everybody's probably had a bad car. What did it not do? It did not get you consistently where you wanted to go without it breaking down or without it costing you a lot of money. Right. Good and bad. If we look, if you understand this term goodness, as I kind of like the light bulb went off for me one day when I was doing my studying, it's like we were in this context last year of talking about real life. What do we define real life to be here at Vintage? Your real life is being who God created you to be and doing what God created you to do. That sounds like goodness, doesn't it? You were created for a certain reason, certain purpose, and you were fulfilling and being and becoming and doing that very being that person and doing that very thing. Jesus was good. He came and fulfilled all that the father had intended for him to fulfill. He was a good son. He loved and was passionately in love with his father. He was a good savior. He went to the cross and did everything that was needed. And and then some on your behalf and on my behalf. Is anybody glad that Jesus is good? Jesus is good. And you and I can get excited about the goodness of God because he fulfilled all that God had in store for him. So let me just ask you kind of in a little bit in connection to where did you see God to be? Don't answer this question, but answer it in your own head. Where would you grade your scale, yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 on your goodness in the Christian life? Are you fully being who God created you to be and doing all that God created you to do? Or is there room for some resolution in your life, just as there is mine? You see... I believe I'm I'm crediting it to John Wesley. I believe it was John Wesley that said, I have learned to weigh everything in accordance with the weight that it has for eternity. I've learned to weigh everything in accordance and the weight that it has for eternity. You see, just like the, the vision that produces change in so many, so many different lives that there's an incentive to do well, you know, in work or there's an incentive to train as an athlete. But but I think, and again, I'm accrediting it to Wesley. Um, if you look at all these things, most of us live the majority of our lives and our actions and our efforts and our thoughts on a life that is about here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, how many of us get upset and angry and irate over something as small as the toothpaste lid getting left off or the toilet paper, you know, running out in the bathroom and nobody replacing it or the garbage not getting taken out? I mean, how much of the energy of our life gets caught up on the here today and gone tomorrow? I mean, that's the here this moment and gone the next, not to mention the crisis at work that is 
maybe here this week, but two months from now, you can't remember it. Is there some opportunity to bring some resolve to our way of living and our way of thinking that could look more like Jesus and be more like who he is and us find life in learning to live in that manner? Because I'm pretty confident Jesus didn't live his life wrapped up on the here today and gone tomorrow stuff. I really believe that Jesus every day lived with this eternal perspective on everything that he was a part of. And if I had to ask you to grade yourself on how much do you have an eternal perspective on everything that you're involved in? How much is that the reality of how you're living or how you're thinking? So we look and see. If this is what Jesus did perfectly and how he lived, and, and maybe if you're anything like me, you're maybe down here at a, at a point seven on that scale, on one to ten. How much room for improvement is there if I'm going to become like him? How much life is waiting for me as I take steps to move and become like him? You see, Jesus wasn't distracted. Even when I'm even to the point where... Jesus, one of his most beloved friends, is sick and he's in a, in a city, you know, a few days away and people travel to come tell him Lazarus is sick. And scripture says that he waited there four days before he returned. Like he was not caught up on having to respond to the immediate need that the brothers of Lazarus and the friends of Lazarus saw that if, if Jesus, the Messiah, can come, then maybe Lazarus won't perish. But Jesus wasn't swayed by what the immediate need was. He was simply fixed on what his father's will was. To the point that some four days later, then he comes back and immediately recognizes and sees the will of his father to raise Lazarus from the dead... What no one else can see, it's, it's, it, it, was ne- it wasn't done in history, that no one had been raised from the dead, and yet Jesus saw this, this potential and this reality that this is what his father wanted to do. This is how the father wanted to glorify himself, was to raise Lazarus from the dead off of everybody's radar screen. But you have to see the beauty in Jesus' story that he was just there to be with his father and not let the circumstances of this life the here today and gone tomorrow things dictate how he was going to live. You see, I truly believe that this is possible for you and for me. I truly believe and, and, and hold him to his word that he has given us his very spirit. The very same spirit that lived within Jesus is alive within you and within me today. If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then his spirit can come and live within us and we can grow and learn to live in accordance with the spirit. One of the main things that, that I want you to hear from me this morning is we just as I just continue to look at this little passage in in Second Peter is this term this, this term knowledge. Add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge. And and knowledge in the Greek is this term gnosko. If you're if you if you know Spanish, then you may know what you you may have picked this up this piece up. Conosar in Spanish is to know this this term gnosko in the Greek is to know, but different than how different than how we think about knowing things. We typically in the West think about knowing things in the form of information or education that I know how to do a math problem or I know how to do 
you know, X, Y, and Z as something that I have learned. You see, gnosko in the Greek is to have experiential knowledge. It's one thing to, to read a manual and to know how to change the oil in a car. It's a whole other thing to climb up under the car, have a wrench, undo the, the bolt, the screw holding the, underneath the oil pan and draining all the oil out and putting that back and filling the car back up with oil. And by the way, change the filter while you're there. It's a whole different thing to read it and, and have the concept of knowing how to change oil in the car and having the experiential knowledge of having done so. Which, which person would you rather have changed the oil in your car? Someone that had the ongoing experiential knowledge of changing the oil or somebody that read the manual and said, I think I can do this. Right? Friends, we all have to be honest with ourselves and recognize the Pharisee within all of us. That the Pharisee wants us to believe that we can read the manual about living the Christian life and know what living a Christian life is about. The Pharisee within all of us wants to check the box and say, I've read the manual and I understand the Christian life. And that is not the life, that is not the knowledge that God has in store for you and I to know. The, the knowledge that he has for you and I to know is a firsthand experiential knowledge. This term was used in Luke, in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, and, it's, and, it, and it reads, And Mary, who was a virgin, said to the angel, How will this be, since I do not know a man? Since I have not had firsthand encounter, intimacy with a man, how is it possible for me to become pregnant? This is what that term is in relation to. First-hand experiential knowledge that this thing has happened. It has taken place. There's this encounter that has taken place between me and God, and I am experientially growing in it every day. That's different than reading the manual. You follow me? What if I told you that I have the strength to hold a tree in my hand? If I told that to a seven-year-old sitting here on the floor, they'd be like, oh, he's really strong, right? I tell you, I hold a tree in my hand. Who can tell me? Who that can see this? What is this? It's an acorn. You know, I'm holding a tree in my hand. God put everything that was needed for a tree to come to life. In this very thing, I hold a tree in my hand, but it is not yet fully a tree, right? This would not offer a man in the, in the heat of summer searching for shade anything that he desired. He could hold it up as far as he wanted, and it's not going to give him the shade that he desires in the heat of the summer. Friends, most of our Christian lives more model an acorn than they do the tree that God has in store for you and I to become to the world that we live in. Full on potential 
to be able to participate in the divine nature and to become like Christ and to grow into the fullness of who he would have you and I to be. But because of whatever the things may be, we have ceased to grow into and become the very shade that the world seeks in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I believe that there is this secrecy, this this great opportunity that God wants to have become a reality in our lives as we live to seek to know him. You see, as I read through scripture, I'm enamored by this by this book of Song of Solomon. And and just to paraphrase this book, if you if you've read it, it's this story of a of a lover and, and the beloved and it's, it's, it's basically this big poem. It's very poetic. You have to read it. It's full of very rich literature. But it's a short book. And it's this, this fascinating story that you really just kind of have to give in, get into. But if you understand the meaning behind the story, it's this parallel between the heart of Jesus Christ and the heart of his bride, known as the church. It's this parallel, this this allegory between us, his bride, and the passion we should have for our groom. And there are these, there are these two things that I, I discovered a few years ago and just kind of studying this book, these two tests that come of the bride, chapter 3 and chapter 5. And you may have heard me mention this before, but in chapter 5, I think it's, this, it's the darkest and most difficult moment for the bride, but it was also, I think, her greatest moment that we can see. She was... And in her room, and she heard the the groom, the the bridegroom, her beloved, her lover coming, and he knocked on the door. But she didn't quickly get out of bed. But finally, when she waited there in, with anticipation, after he had knocked and he didn't open the door, she then got out of bed and went to the door and he wasn't there. And so immediately she runs out into the city. And as she's running out into the city, crying out, have you seen my lover? Have you seen this one my heart desires? These watchmen, these people of the night who were there to stand guard in the city came in the, in the, in the, the scripture teaches that. And they, they beat her and they abused her and they robbed her and they stole her cloak. And these women come along and they said, oh, you know, lover, what is what is it that you're looking for? And she said, I'm looking for my beloved. Well, who is he and what is he like? And she goes on to describe him. He is most radiant among 10,000. His hair is like this and his eyes are like this. And it goes on in great poetic scripture of who this man is and and how many of of us would fail that test as a bride that the moment that Jesus didn't show up and meet us in our moment of need would we have even left the room because of our passion or lack of passion to go fully pursue him but see she ran out in the night without taking concern for herself and then when she was mistreated she had this passion because she knew him and she had an experiential encounter with the goodness of who he was that there was no ability within her to accuse him of not being present there was this burning passion within her that only knew him to be good and so this goodness of who he is was so sure in her life that this tragedy happens to her and she just oozes out with uh, with Verse after verse of how beautiful this man is that she is seeking. She never once points back at, look at this injustice that's just happened to me. Help me up from the curb in which I'm laying on because I was just beaten. No, she just is so enamored and, and amazed at how beautiful her bridegroom is that she doesn't even give herself 
a word of mention in the passage. Friends, this is the spirit that Jesus Christ has and wants to have come alive within you and within me. Do we know that we know that we know that we know that we're experiencing, that we're encountering daily the goodness of God because God is good. He is only good. There is nothing but goodness in him. There is no yin and yang in God. There is only goodness. He is as good as he is holy. And if you imagine and you believe the lie that you've all been told and I've been told, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to devour. He comes to sow seeds of doubt into our minds, into our thinking about whether or not God is really good. Is he really good? He walks around pretending to guard the city, but he's waiting to steal, kill, and destroy and beat. And to sow little seeds of, well, where is your lover? He's always trying to twist God into someone that he's not. He's always trying to make God someone less than perfectly good. Even in some small way, he wants you to believe and think that God is in some way not fully good. And where we allow those thoughts to be centered and have our minds fixed on, the knowledge of God is being stolen away. You see, Jesus didn't allow those same temptations that I'm sure the enemy sowed and fired at him to think that his father was not good and that his father would not provide, that his father was not going to give him bread in the desert when he had been fasting for 40 days, that he was not going to guard his life. He didn't allow those temptations of the enemy to take root and to change his knowledge of who God is. You see, Jesus Christ wants you in 2016 to know him intimately. He wants you to have an encounter with him beyond what you have known him to be thus far. You see, the Pharisee in every one of us, number one, wants to be able to read the manual and say, I've got it. And number two, wants to say, yeah, I get that. No, you don't. No, I don't. I don't know the goodness of God to date like he intends for me to understand it tomorrow. And I don't know it tomorrow the way and the level in which he, he wants for me to know it in July. Every day, God wants us to grow experientially, firsthand with the knowledge of his goodness. And friends, where we fail to make that a resolution, not for 2016, but for our life, we fail to live the Christian life. We fail to bring our will to be in alignment with the spirit of God and his will within us. Because God is good. He wants you to grow in a knowledge of his goodness every day. What is it that you need to do? How is it that we come around and find an opportunity to move into that being the encounter and that being the reality of our life? So how do you move into this? Resolution, And I would say you get on your knees and you say, God, teach me 
how to love. Teach me how to love you. Lead me away from the, the thoughts and the twistings of the definition of love that, that have told me that love is about being conditional. That would say that love is something that can be here today and gone tomorrow. All the things that have been modeled for me in the world that says love is about how I feel in the moment. Those are just things that lead us to the continual disappointments of being able to move from my marriage needs help. And then the crisis is immediate crisis is over, but you never make the change and the cycle just keeps happening. Those are the twisted seeds that the enemy sows that that leads us to find hope and a vision of how an improvement for today can produce something good for me tomorrow. But friends, the things that matter. Learning how to weigh everything in the weight of which it holds for eternity leads us to love, love and live a whole new life. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up and we're just going to take a few minutes. And what I want to encourage you to in, the, in this next few minutes, I'm going to read a quote to you from Mike Bickle. I want you to think about these things I'm going to say in the next few minutes. He says, if you could get just a glimpse, you would become a new person. No matter who you are or what you have done, he longs for you to know the truth. That is, his affections for you are very deep. Even when you are at your weakest, seeing the passion and splendor of God's personality will help bring you to a personal wholeness and spiritual maturity. And it will awaken in you a fervent devotion to God and a passion for Jesus. You see, the thing that's going to to matter, the thing that's going to allow us to to take the the challenge that I'm putting before you this morning to to make a a new life resolution, to wake up every day and to say, to ask myself this question, do I want God more than anything else in life? Do I want God more than anything else in life? Waking up and asking this question, This challenge to the Pharisee within every one of us opens up the opportunity to lead our heart to to say, I need more. I want to know more the revelation of who you are in your goodness. You see, unless you fall in love with the vision of this change, unless you fall in love, you will fall away. Unless you lead your heart to learn how to fall in love every day with Jesus more You'll find yourself falling away. The enemy will come and steal, kill, and destroy or distract. And we'll find ourselves with all the potential of an acorn. But never having been placed in the soil of a heart that wakes up every day and said, God, do I love you more than anything else in this world? Lead me. To say yes today. Every morning, Lord, I want to wake up and I want to focus on your beauty, on your character, on your personality, on your faithfulness, on your devotion, on your power, on your gentleness, on your kindness, on your generosity and on your goodness. I want to have the characters of the the very character of God be the very thing that my mind and my heart are moving toward. And in this, there is a fullness of life that your spirit wants to come and bring, but only in the soil 
Does the heart, this soil, does the heart grow into becoming the very potential and the very thing that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for? You see, he had this great resolve. He looked at the world and saw a wrong that had taken place and made a resolution to say, I will resolve that issue, that there will be nothing that that comes between me and man, that the issue of sin will be no more. I will resolve this and I will do all that is needed for this to become a reality so that they can commune with me and know the reality of the love that I have for them. So, Lord, right now, we just come before you and we say yes and amen to your plans and your desires. Whatever our efforts and our intentions and our focus were to think that a New Year's resolution would give me some hope, would give me some joy, would give me some some brilliance to 2016. Lord, we just cast that aside. And there may be something really good that you're leading us to. But, Lord, we don't find hope in that thing. We find joy in the discipline of becoming who you would have us be. But the reality is we place our full hope and our full devotion and our full heart on saying, God, teach me how to lead my heart to be able to say, I look for you and you alone more than anything else in this life that you've given me. This is how you came and lived as a man. Grow me to become the man or the woman that you designed me to be. Harvest and the team are just going to continue as they lead us in a ministry time. We're going to have people up on either side to be able to pray for you. If there.